iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. You're going along with your life and you look around and you notice like, oh, I am in my 30s. I have $40,000 in debt. I live with a weirdo. You do have a super creepy roommate. You read my diary? At first, I did not know that it was your diary. I thought it was a very sad handwritten book. Are you coming over tonight? I have big news. Ooh, I can't wait. I'm engaged. What? Will you be my maid of honor? Of course. <laughs> You'll love the rest of the bridesmaids. I'd be more than happy to handle the bachelorette and the shower. I think I can handle it. Annie, what is this place? I know it looks a little scary on the outside. The food here is really, really good. Oh, look, you can get a check cash next door. Come on! Helen, aren't you having any meat? It's not good to eat a big meal before a fitting. This is some classy sh <laughs> I want to apologize. I'm not even confident of which end that came out of. You got food poisoning from that restaurant. <laughs> no. Everybody, go outside. Be careful! <laughs> we all got the flu. Such a coincidence. I feel like her life is going off and getting perfect, and mine's just like. Come on. I need you to touch your nose with your finger. If I was drunk, would I be able to do this? I would hope so. I, was gonna leave you I wanted to go over some ideas for the bachelorette party. I was thinking Las Vegas, strip club, Disney World, fight club. Go to a fight club? No, we're not gonna go to a oh, fight club. Okay. We're gonna be the fight club. Vegas it is. I'm a nervous flyer, I'm sorry. I had a dream last night that we went down. You were in it. What? You should just toss it back. I'm ready to party. You're like the maid of dishonor. Hmm. I was gonna leave you till you kissed me. I wanted to leave you then you kissed me. We're gonna take this huge step and I'm gonna be there right next to you. I am dead serious. Dead serious. Will you marry me? Yes. Do you have a date for the wedding? Because I have a great guy for you. I'm gonna just hang down here with my son Tyler and be back in a minute. Sure. Did you eat one of those? Late Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, Elvis Mitchell from The Treatment, and tonight's guest, director Paul Feig. sad on this we have to leave these behind so please don't break it yeah exactly. <laughs> well, let me ask you one of the things i want to know what was your first contact with judd apatow like how'd you guys end up meeting well we've uh, judd and i've been friends since he was about 17 years old we were all uh, stand-up comedians together uh, and worked in the clubs and, uh, and and had a group of friends we would hang out at this place called The Ranch, which was this really crappy house in the, in the San Fernando Valley that we all, was like the, the low-rent Algonquin round table. It was the <laughs> Algonquin dirty table. And, uh, but like Steve Higgins, who, uh, who runs Saturday Night Live now, and, and a lot of other, uh, Dana Gould, and uh, yeah, lots of really, people who are really established in the comedy world now. We were all performers then. So, uh, so, but Judd and I always bonded over, we always thought stuff was funny that nobody else thought was funny. And so we just had this special relationship. And it just kind of carried over for, for a long time. Um, you know, then, when, then he got more powerful and I was acting at the, for a long time. And he put me in a movie that he was producing called uh, uh, Heavyweights. 
So it was Ben that. Schiller. Yes, exactly. Written directed by Steve Brill, and uh, that was fun. And and then we he would just we just always stay in contact, and he would always send me scripts when he was had a project coming up to get notes, and you know I go to table reads, and then I did a, a movie, uh, a, a ultra low budget movie called Life Sold Separately. Mm-hmm. And he saw it and liked it so much that he he just made a deal with DreamWorks TV coming out. He was coming out of Larry Sanders' show and said, "Hey, if you ever have a show that you think you know a script or an idea that you think would be right for us, let me know." So I, took, I waited a year because I wanted to get the right thing, and then I wrote Freaks and Geeks as a spec script and just sent it to him because I know we have the same sensibility. And he liked it and bought it immediately. And and next thing you knew, we were on the air. It was very a very fast process. Do you have similar sort of working processes too in terms of the way you put cast together and that kind of thing? Yeah, we're, we're in total agreement on the way we like to do stuff. We like to find really funny people. We like to open the door wide. We don't have any kind of, uh, you know, you can't come in if you look like this, you look like that. It's just wherever we're casting, bring us the funniest people. We have the greatest casting director I know who's uh, Allison Jones who she's done everything for us she, when I was an actor she used to cast me and then then uh, I repaid the favor by hiring her <laughs> whatever and <laughs> she was lucky to be not having me coming in acting anymore uh, and then yeah and she just would bring in the best people for the roles and, and find us um, you know kind of oddballs and all that kind of thing and we would uh, kind of throw the doors wide open and, and have them do some improv and we always just would write Whenever I audition, I like to write, as opposed to having them do the scenes, we'll just write like a speech or a long dialogue so that I can really showcase and see what the people are doing as opposed to them just sticking to the dialogue and the script. So you get to know their personalities better that way. And uh, you know that's how you find people. And then once you find somebody you like, then you go in and you rewrite the script to accommodate their personality because if they're not quite like the character, you'd rather have somebody come in and be great and you go like, oh, that person's so great... Let's cast them as opposed to go like, oh, they're so great, but they're not quite what I envisioned for this, so we'll let them go. Like, if somebody's great, we're going to grab them and hang on to them and, and, and turn the project into, you know, to, to fit them. Because one of the things that I find kind of fascinating is that you kind of shifted from writing a lot to directing a lot. Yeah. And, I, and I wonder what precipitated that. Well, it just, I mean, Freaks was, at the time, was considered kind of a failure, uh, you know, because it was so low rated and we got canceled before we... But it was a show with an incredibly devoted following, so much so that, I don't know if you guys know the story, when it went to DVD, there was kind of a petition. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, but it took four years to get the DVD out because of music rights, clearance, and all. But this. you got all the music from the show. Yeah, well, except with a couple of exceptions, because there's that Neil Young song. You That's didn't the get. only one because we he, Neil Young wouldn't give us his permission to use it, which was a bummer because uh, he approved it originally. Yeah, but I don't know, he changed his mind. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, so that I mean that was actually an interesting thing because right after we got canceled, a lot of companies wanted to put out the DVDs, but they didn't want to pay for the money, so they wanted to replace the music with generic music. And I said, you can't. That's literally like stripping out the characters. And also, the music was key for like a lot of emotional points. I mean, yeah. basically, the emotional narrative was as key to Freaks and Geeks as the story points were. Yeah, and we would, we would honestly even just... We would write two songs. We would write for the specific songs, as opposed to kind of glue them on after the date. So, uh, yeah, so it's just very integral to it. Um, and then I derailed the question. I'm sorry. Well, no, just you, you talking about that show not being a success. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. To directing. Oh, yeah. Uh, so 
I mean, I kept writing after that, and everybody kind of wanted a show from me, and they go, we want your voice, we want your voice, and then I'd bring them shows, and they're like, oh, but not, <laughs> not that voice, or not that one. <laughs> so it just, I kept having things, and they kept not buying it. I was, I was in development for a number of years, and, and would never, I never got a pilot made. They would buy it, and they'd like make it, so they had to pay me a penalty if they didn't do it, and then they'd just pay the penalty because they didn't want to, it was very bizarre. So I just started to burn out, and at the same time, I was like, I gotta, I'm gonna do something. And so that was when, um, Victor Shu, who was our, our line producer on Freaks and Geeks, was doing Arrested Development. And he called me up and said, hey, they'd like you to direct over here. And I was like, I'd love that show. It was, right in the, it was still the first season. And so went over and started doing that. And then just things just started opening up. Uh, really good shows started popping up, you know, you know like the, the Office and, 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 and all those. And, and so it just, I just kind of started doing it. It was fun. And they were shows that since they knew me as a writer, they were giving me more, more input than they might a normal TV director. Oh. Yeah, not that I not I did a lot of writing on it, but just I could you know they were writing such great stuff, but then I could just kind of put my stamp on it. It was also kind of a strength yours too in working with uh, ensemble improv casts. Yeah, yeah, I, I love it. I love improv. I come from an improv background, and so I find that it's really that's where the magic happens with with comedy. When comedy gets too scripted, sometimes it gets a little stale, or it gets um, you know you just kind of it feels written. I hate when things feel written, and there's something great about when something happens for the first time between funny people, it's like you can never recapture that. And so that's whenever I shoot anything, we always cross-shoot it. So I'm shooting you and me at the same time when we're talking as opposed to shooting you first and then turning around and shooting me and recreating the scene. Because we like to throw curveballs and we have people that are good at improv and I'm always, I'm always, they always make, all the actors always make fun of me because I'm always saying like, okay, dealer's choice now, dealer's choice, just surprise me, do whatever you want. And then, then that'll like spur something and I'll have an idea of like, oh, try this joke or then somebody else on the set will they'll chime in or if we have a writer with us and they'll do it and it just keeps it very vibrant and so you you get these things that are very much in the moment and they feel like you're you're listening in and you're sitting at dinner with like funny people being funny and because i i love sitting with funny people and i love joking around with people and and hanging around with the really smart comedians and just to recreate that feeling on the big screen gives you it just gives you a, a funnier more pleasant experience i feel well, how much of Bridesmaids was on the page versus being improvised? Uh, I mean, a lot of the dialogue in this movie is, is improvised. Uh, but, but we had a very, very set template that we went off of. Kristen, and, uh, Kristen Wiig and Annie Momolo wrote the script, and they wrote a really great script. And then, then Judd and I came in and you know, kind of helped them get this, you know, worked on the story with them and getting that right. We would all take cracks at different things just to make sure that the story was great. Um, we didn't want to. The problem I find the problem with a lot of comedies is they try to go for the jokes and the funny setups first, and they don't get the bottom story, the, the, the emotional through line of the characters, right first. So then they always kind of insert that stuff in later, and that's why some comedies feel like you know, here's a funny scene, okay, here's a sad scene, here's a funny scene, here's a sad scene, and I, we like to mix it all up. But that you can only do that if you know the exact roadmap you have and, and have those arcs correct and really work that story and work it hard but then once you do that you get really funny dialogue you work the jokes in it as much as you can we have the actors come in and they'll they'll uh rehearse and do improvs of scenes and give us ideas and and, and kind of you know help us flesh flesh out the character to make it more more 
real for them. And then we take that stuff and keep putting it in. So by the time we go into production, we have a really good script with really funny dialogue. But then that's just a jumping off point for us. Because, you know, we'll get to shoot the dialogue a few times. And then it's like, let's start playing. And you try this, and then I'll get an idea. And we, and we have some writers with us a lot of times. And they'll just be, I'll, I'll be behind the monitor, and they're handing notes into me with, like, jokes on it. And I'll just, I'll just call them out to the actors. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. It, we keep it very, improv actors are great because they just know you're going to, throw it in so it's not even like hey could you try a line i just go like you know i'll just just say a topic to them or something like you know get, get meaner with her or you know to, to surprise her or to talk about a vacation or whatever it is and then they just know they just go right into it and without thinking and that's how you get this very fresh stuff and if you're working with really funny people they just come up with amazing things so by the time you finish a take you've got a ton of jokes that you could possibly use for each scene but one of the things that you do a lot is deal with people who can't maintain control of their own lives. I mean, that's a thing that's key to the way you work. And it, even if you should read his terrific memoir, Super Stud, that <laughs> just the, the sort of the seeds of where the comedy comes from, <laughs> you can find in that book. But this happens here, too. And it, it's, it's almost like Kristen's lack of control kind of infects the entire wedding party. Yeah, because I find that very interesting. I, I find that I, you know, none of us are really feel that in control of our lives. Even the moments when we do, we know we're, your heart, you know you're kind of not. Or if you think you are, then you will immediately be proven that you are not. <laughs> and, and it's just that it's that insecurity. That To me, insecurity and awkwardness, that's life. And that's relatable. And that's funny because... We all have been through it, and it's just seeing how other people deal with it. And sometimes it's funny to watch somebody not dealing with it well. And as long as you like that person, you'll put up with them sort of making mistakes. And that's what it is with this. Is This is a woman who's at a really bad point in her life. She wasn't at a bad point before. She, she kind of had a business and all that, but it went out of business because of the recession. So it's knocked her off her game. But the fact that you know kind of going in, we, we seed in through the movie that what she used to be, it allows you to go like, oh, now, well, now I can kind of have fun with her being in a bad period because I know she was doing fine. She's just in that period that we all go through where things aren't working, but I'm going to root for her to get back to who she was versus if she was just a pathetic loser, just a nut from day one, it might be less satisfying. You might have less involved with kind of wanting... You might lose patience for, with her. You know but, I, mean? I mean, part of the two is that I think... And I wonder if this is a, a concern for you, is that people are used to seeing Kristen Wiig work big. Mm. you know, and make an impact right away. And if you do that in the movie, you're going to lose people because you, you're basically top-loading it. Yeah, well, I, I rely, I, for my touchstone is her, more of her movie work where she does, you know, like Adventureland and in Extract and, and where she she plays these more grounded, they're very weird characters and very, you know, <laughs> troubled and anxiety-ridden, but they're still, but she plays it at a, at a nice level, I think. But she, I, I was saying, one of the yeah. things she does in movies is she works as compared to television. Yeah. She works very slow. Yeah, very slow and very small, which I love because that's that's real. Then that's that's then you can invest in that person. If she's bouncing off the walls, being like mm, you know, kind of crazy, then you're you're like, oh well, she's she doesn't have respect for the person she's playing. That to me is the key to it all, because I there's some things I see, and I and it's always endemic with a lot of comedy performers. It had been where they're playing a character of like I'm this guy's dumb and I know he's dumb and you know he's dumb so let's just have fun with knowing how dumb he is and it's like well okay but you don't like that person that you're playing and so how am I supposed to like that person and that's fine for that style of comedy when it's just big and broad that's great I got no problem with that it's just it doesn't appeal to me and I don't know how to 
how to do that. I, I can't. I lose interest watching that character. I want to be invested with a person so that when they're they're in pain, it's like, oh my god, I'm in pain too, or oh, I've been there with you and it gets better, or oh, you did just happen worse to you than what happened to me, and all I can do is laugh because you know it, it happened. And what are you going to? It's how you react to it because it's all behavioral comedy, is what it is. That thing that we're talking about, though, is when somebody's that big at the beginning of the movie, you know that when the change comes, it's going to be so abrupt that it's almost a tag at the end of the movie. Yeah. And for you, it's got to be evolutionary, doesn't it? Yeah, you have to believe the, the, tra- the transformation. Like, you know, case in point with this, if she was just a disaster from the you know, from beginning of her life and we just see flashbacks of she was a mess and she just ne- never got anything right, what we're hoping for is, she, well, she, she gets better, but that sea change is going to have to be so so huge I mean, people don't change that fast I don't think there's that many like epiphany there's epiphany moments in life but it's not like and now I'm a different person and, and I no rem- remnants of the old person yeah. so that's why I like about this is starting from point where you go she was together she's lost it so what I'm rooting for is get back to who you were and then maybe I'll hope you maybe you're even a little bit more together than that but there, I think there's no big victories I think everything is small victories in life but that's what, one of the reasons why Freaks and Geeks got cancelled was because they were like why can't they win at the end why can't something good happen in the end and I'm like I thought they did win because they're still friends and they didn't die <laughs> or kill anybody they didn't kill anybody and they seemed relatively happy so that's all I ask for out of life but it's the thing I've talked to you about this before obviously is that that's kind of storytelling, that kind of emotional storytelling that's a part of Freaks and Geek is, is basically NBC's Thursday Night lineup now. Yeah. Oh, no, totally. But that, that's why comedy has definitely changed for, for what I consider the better since we were on with Freaks and Geeks. It's, it's gone from being joke-based and big character-based to being behavioral. Because it came basically after that period of all those stand-ups like Roseanne and Seinfeld, yeah. which is all about delivering as big a laugh as you can. Right, exactly. And yet even those great shows at least had a core. of like Roseanne was always great. They always kept this core reality. Or like I always loved um, Taxi because sure. like James Brooks. You but know, that's like, that was 30 years earlier, basically. No, totally. Yeah. So, so the behavioral comedy is much more based just on human interaction. And I think a lot of it comes from the internet, the fact that, YouTube, we see so much real-life video of kind of funny stuff and people acting like themselves that it, we've seen what's funny about that. And I love that because I've always found that funny. And so now, like, you know, I, I work a lot in the office, and um, I've been in the writer's room one season when I was producing it in, in there with them. And, like, sometimes I'll, like, in my, old, my, my late 40s-ishness, will kind of pitch out a joke. And they'll all, these younger writers will look at me like, like crazy because it's a joke, and they don't respond to that. Yeah, they're kind of like, no, what's the real funny thing that would be said that's just more the awkward or the weird thing or that you would naturally that would naturally come out versus here's a crazy joke or here's a pun or here's you know that sort of thing. So I think it's great. Um, and the only thing is when you are in comedy now, as you get older in comedy, you really need to have voices of people your age, people older, and people younger around you because. But you do need to have some younger people around because <laughs> it sounds so dumb, but because you you your freshness date goes off in comedy sometimes because comedy is very referential. I don't like referential comedy. I don't like making jokes kind of about current bands or dropping in because then it then it has got a shelf life and then eventually it's now you know good. So it's all based on on relationship in the world. But but the style changes a bit. So. That's where you see, I don't know, some people do stuff and it just feels old-fashioned and out of touch. 
you just need a lot of input. You need input from people you, from all generations because that's the best comedy. If, if, if a comedy can make all generations laugh, then that's great. You don't want to, you know, and I don't like doing stuff that ostracizes one part of the public, but the only way to really make everybody laugh is to do stuff about human nature because human nature never changes. Yeah, because uh, Greg Daniels, who created The Office, worked on King of the Hill, which is a show that could almost work as radio. Yeah. I mean, that's... It's not wild, even though it's animated. It's all incredibly behavior-based. Mm. It's really about those characters yeah. rather than it being big, cartoony comedy. Yeah, yeah. It's just the, it's the fun of kind of people interacting in a real way. It's believable. If you believe something and you believe in those characters, you'll follow them a lot longer than you will characters that you just kind of go like, oh, they're funny and I'm, I, don't, I don't have any investment in this person. It's also about intimacy too, though, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, no, very much so. It's, it's, it's human interaction is all intimacy. I mean, everybody we meet, even people we don't know, we are intimate with in just the sense that when you're in front of a human being, they become a human being to you. you know, it's, like, it's very hard to vilify people when they're right in front of you. It's easy to vilify somebody on the television or somebody you hear about. But the minute you get with them, it's like, oh, my God, they're, they're a person, and I see that they're, you know, I, I see that they're human, and, and they're vulnerable. And, and that vulnerability is what ties us all together. And, and uh, you know, it's like, Amer it's interesting. This is a little off topic, but it kind of thought the difference between like American audiences and British audiences say, and it, it ties back to the office. The, the, the very much ties back to the office. Yeah, the British office was Ricky Gervais's Vase's character was really mean and really hilarious, but a very very painful show to watch. Painful show to watch and very not likable. But the Brits, for some reason, love to see people taking the piss out of, so they can sit there and enjoy like oh, enjoying the downfall of somebody. And I find it very funny, too. I love British comedy. I love those kind of shows. But American audiences don't like that. And so when they brought the, the American, did the American office here, the first six episodes, they kind of stuck with the format that the British show did and had Steve Carell playing pretty jackassy. And it didn't take off. People were kind of didn't respond to it. And it was only after the, when they came back for a second season, they got renewed because Kevin Riley was running the network at that time, liked the show, even though it had low ratings. In that, that summer that they were off, 40-Year-Old Virgin came out, and Steve is so lovable and funny in that, and it was this realization of, like, people love him when he's that way. How do we keep Michael Scott being still the jerky boss but make it where people like him? And it was only once we added a, vul a vulnerability to him where he sometimes he would do the right thing. Or you could see, like, there was a flash moment when we were, I directed, the, the first episode I ever directed was Office Olympics. Oh. And is where he buys the condo, and he's having all this remorse that he bought this condo, and they're playing games back in the in the office in his absence, and they do this decide to do this funny ceremony where they give out these you know rib you know, medals, yeah. And so um, so the whole end of the show is going to be that they are going to kind of make fun of Michael by giving him a, a, a medal and just putting him up on this uh, you know for the on ceremony and kind of laugh at the fact that he's been given this medal and is, believes it's a good thing. But he gets up there, and they start playing the national anthem, and he's got it on, and all of a sudden, he just starts, he starts to, his eyes start to well up because he's so happy that he's getting this after this terrible day. And it was just such a humanizing moment. And then it was just kind of like, Steve, just go with that. Let's keep doing that. And it was the moment that I think people suddenly felt the humanity of him but It's there. also the moment where it became the American version of The Office, but it wasn't just about him being so awful yeah. that you just could barely stand to watch yeah it became about a guy also who, it was about who, six only six episodes the british office too yeah oh yeah exactly exactly and, and then but the american office then became about not a guy who's a jerk but a guy who desperately wants to be liked but is terrible at it you know 
and is just like overreaching and thinks he's funny, and you know, which I find I find that very funny. People who think they're funny who aren't funny. It's a very funny portrait thing to portray in a show. It's not funny to have in real life. <laughs> but, <laughs> but one of these things that you're also so good at too is people sort of kind of miscommunicating. <laughs> oh, well, thanks. I mean, yeah, I, I find communication between people very funny, and I find people who try to be articulate and aren't, it, it's a very lovable quality, because I think that's how we all are in some ways. I mean, some people are definitely more articulate than others, but I never feel very articulate. I always feel like I'm kind of struggling, and I think all our problems come from the fact that we say the wrong thing in the wrong moment. We blurt out stuff thinking it's going to be great, and then it's like wrong, and you say it wrong. I, I just find that to be the fiber of sort of the, the, the vulnerability and the comedy between people. Because finally, comedy really, it's got to be about conflict on, on one way or another, yeah. doesn't it? Oh, very much so. I mean, that, that's, that's the story, you know, when you're breaking the story, it's all about the arc and the, uh, the storytelling has to be where the moments of conflict come, when do you bring them in, when do you kind of let up on them, but that, that has to drive the story forward. There has to be stuff happening, and usually not good stuff happening to people. And we, I mean, we, honestly, we, we beat up on Kristen's character quite a bit in this movie, <laughs> but, it, it, but under the guise of she needs to be, she needs to deconstruct in order to reconstruct properly, and she's she's got so many things that she's that are holding her back that you just need to tear her completely down so that then she's open for open for you know kind of changing herself and seeing life anew and kind of bringing herself back. So you know, every movie is kind of a redemption piece in some way. So that's that's what this one is. But what's interesting, I think about this too, is just there are so many moments of intimacy in this movie, but as much as you need to sort of break her down, the kind of comedy you do isn't about the kind of take-no-prisoner school of comedy, which no. is, again, almost seems like old-style comedy, you know, that kind of really angry, assaultive comedy. Yeah, it's just, I, I, people don't, I don't know, I think ultimately people don't enjoy it because it gets very assaultive, too. And, and the problem is a lot of women's, mo movies about women tend to, they play on this, women as if they're always at this fever pitch and fighting, and it's like, that's not my experience with with the women I know, and, and I think a lot of women feel like they're being portrayed a little... Well, in, wedding, in wedding comedies especially. Yeah, oh yeah, it's because everybody, the emotions are high, and they're fighting, and they're thing, you know, and it's a cat fight, and it's like, oh God, please no cat fights, because, I mean, if you're going to have that, at least, like, build to it where, it, like, it's finally a payoff where you're like, oh, there's nowhere else this could go. But even then, it make it real, and... and I, I think women are so underserved by, especially the comedy world, because they're either forced to be shrews, or they're forced to be a drag, or, or they're forced to be the hot girl who's kind of sweet, and you know she's the, the Madonna figure that like the the goofy guy gets. Or, or well, the beautiful girl in a in a comedy is always mean. Yes. Always. Yes. Only without question. Yes, exactly. Because <laughs> all pretty people are mean. We well, all know that, right? <laughs> it's, a, it's something I struggle with, but I've gotten past it. Yeah, me too. It. I know. I'm constantly... <laughs> oh. But, I mean, I think it's fascinating that you, in the way, <laughs> in the way that the beautiful woman in this movie, played by Rose Byrne, isn't that person. I mean, right. she... I mean, Kristen resents her, but partially because she is such a good person. Well, that, yeah, and that, yeah, that's the thing. It's like you, you know, you're looking for your enemy, and here's this person who has everything that you want, and she's actually okay. I mean, she still gets a little weird, but she's she's not a villain, and that was the whole thing. Is this she Rose is playing the villain role, but we wouldn't let it be a villain. We just let it be a woman who is actually likes Maya so much. She kind of she wants her to herself, and she also feels that. Kristen's character might be holding Maya back, and so she's almost like trying to help 
Maya by pulling her away from from her fr- old friends. So it's so it's everyone has a pure motive, and I think that's that's the difference. Like I I have a, a real hatred of characters that are just kind of evil, or they're doing stuff to be evil or to be mean, because I don't buy that. Everybody, the worst person in the world doing the worst thing in the world, generally is has some reason why they're doing it. That they think they're doing the right thing, or they're you know, and it, they're screwed up half the time when they think it. But but it's not coming from a place of like I'm just gonna mess with the world. That's you know, it's not that mustachio twirling thing. You know, for me, it's I, I've said this before, but but uh, um, the thing I, all my writing comes from was a George Bernard Shaw quote. At one of the, like when he writes his books, he has all these little maxims at the end, and one was it said, "All men mean well." And I thought that's that's the basis. Every everything should be. Everybody in the in the piece means well. They have some reason why they're doing what they're doing. We just got to figure out what it is. And, and if it's something that's against somebody else, what somebody else wants, then that's great. Then you have conflict. But they're both coming from a pure place or a good, you know, not a good place, but a but a, a logical place that makes place. sense. A place that makes sense to them. Yeah, yeah. Because one of the things that I think start with freaks and geeks, and we're really seeing the impact of it now, is just this sort of thing where. We understand all the characters and the things that you do. I mean, you make all their motives clear, mm. and that's always been key to the way you've worked. Right. Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't. You want to get the guesswork out of the way. You don't want to. You don't want to give everything away right at the front because you want the fun of discovery. But at the same time, you have to know what somebody's, what why they're doing what they're doing because then you can enjoy what enjoy the fruits of what they're doing. So, in order to do that, you really have to get to know the person. Again, it's it, like it's saying what like you're being funny with your friends versus people you don't know. Once you, that's why a TV show is so nice to do because a TV show you get a group of friends and, and you get to stay with them for years. You know, and that's why you'll eventually, as shows go on, people start referring to the characters. You know, like Seinfeld's like, oh, remember what you know what Jerry did? Oh, you remember what George did? Like they talk about them like they're friends because they do become your friends. That's why the show Friends worked because they're your friends. Uh, <laughs> and in a movie, you, you know, you have less time to do that. So, but you still need to create that intimacy between the audience and the characters. And so it's by kind of letting, you know, figuring out these moments that really showcase who this person is in a nutshell, illustrates it, makes you feel for them, shows you their vulnerability or shows you their goal, what they want. You know, it's all about, in showbiz, they always call it stakes. What are the stakes? What, you know, and it is true. It's, you need to raise the stakes. You need to know what that person wants and what that person wants has to be something that you want them to get or that seems important or it seems like has to be done, whether it's a big action movie like saving the world. Well, who doesn't want the world to be saved? Yes, I want this. You know, that's, those are kind of easy stakes because, you know. So with character stuff, it's just what is that goal that somebody wants and, 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 we, and am I going to root for it? And like in this, it's, we see that friendship between them and we, then we see like, oh, that friendship might be going away we want her to get Maya back because we love Maya just from seeing her we like her as much as Annie probably does and so that that pulls us along well, we must have some questions from the audience there's a microphone right here you guys have a, qu- anybody have a question we'll come to you, you because um, while we're free right here yes sir I can tell you how to program your computer if you <laughs> I was just curious that uh, when you actually making actually the freak freaks and geeks there are a lot of actually actors went on to make a big Hardy film after that, like a James Franco and a Seth Rogen. Mm-hmm. Um, how how the actually the casting casting process like back then? Oh well, the, the, the casting process on Freaks and Geeks. It's you know it, it's like I, we just open the doors wide. We don't discriminate against any any like type or anything. It's just like give us the funniest people. So when you do that, it's amazing the talent pool that you get in. 
the irony is, James Franco, I was like, you know, we don't, they don't have to be handsome or anything. It's like, you know, the most handsome man in the world. So, so that, but that just came from the fact that we let this guy in and he just was up against all these other people was so funny. It's like, no, he's great. He's, he's perfect for this role. And so it, it's really just, you know, you, you, you shouldn't filter anything in the beginning of the process. Like, you know, they go, oh, we can't bring them in because they don't look like the character is supposed to look. Well, I don't care how the character is supposed to look. If somebody comes in and they're great and they blow me out of the water, I'm going to change the character to make it fit them you know because then you get a real honest portrayal of, of, of a character and you get people who are have that charisma and have that that star quality and you know the fact that all these people went on to be big stars a it's a testament to judd who who after we did it kept using them in things and then kind of showing them off and getting them to write things for themselves and showcase themselves but also it's a testament to them that they are just you know these very talented people who got a chance to show the world how talented they are and paid it off um, so in the question. back. Yeah. We're in the back here? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, just getting back to that whole casting thing, talking to, to what you were just talking about with um, Maya, the other woman, and Kristen. What what gave you your final decision to get this particular ensemble cast and what have you? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, we saw a lot of really funny people. I mean, such a wealth of funny women that it was a little overwhelming because there were so many women that could have played the roles. What we do is we, we narrow it down to like our 12 or 15 favorite candidates and then we bring them in together and we'll kind of mix and match and pair them up and put them in threes and have them improving scenes. So you start to see kind of who's, who's connecting with who and who like looks looks right what group kind of looks fun together and, and then you kind of weed it down and then there's always that moment where we just kind of we all sit and take stock with, with Kristen and Annie and, and Judd and I and we're just like okay well who do we like and the, and it just it, it usually comes clear pretty quickly uh, and then yeah and then we just kind of go with it and then they're then they're bonded already <laughs> thank you uh, while we're with the microphone to get here I gotta say there's one thing for me that's really satisfying to see a good looking person that's funny yeah Exactly. Well, that's like, yeah, Rose Byrne is, is very funny, and she couldn't be more beautiful, and that was a real discovery. We cast her more because, well, I, I mean, looked at her first because she was an act, you know, more of an actress than a, than a, a comedian, per se. But she also, we saw her stuff in, uh, you know, Judd had produced Get Him to the Greek, and she's in that, and she's hilarious, playing this extreme character, this, this British, crazy British rock star woman. And so just seeing, like, oh, she's got it in her. So we hired her for this, and then created this, she, you know, created this character of, of Helen, uh, who's the, you know the quote unquote baddie, and just really surprised us all with how talented she is. Hi, I notice you use um, Chicago in the Midwest as your background, and do you feel that often that comedies set in LA and New York are kind of too slick and too, pro and comedies set in the Midwest are more real and natural? I, I do find that, and it's it's no. Where are you from? I'm from Michigan, so ah. you kind of go with what you know. Also, he's from Michigan. Ah, that's right. He burned me. I know from Michigan. Why, all <laughs> fellow Detroiters? <laughs> but I, I mean, there actually was a moment in this because we wanted to film it in Los Angeles just for technical reasons, so we could all you know stay close to home. Um, and there was a thought for a little while, like maybe it should be moved. It happened in California. It was just like. You know, Kristen was against it, and I didn't feel it either. It was, there's just something about it. I can't even tell you what it is. It just maybe it's just people deal with different problems there. I mean, the, the big I, I don't know. Look, everybody deals with the same problems. There's just something about you know what it is. Here's what it is. I, I, there's so much stuff been done about Los Angeles and New York that you just do feel like it is a little slick, or it's a little bit of a world for most of the country that they don't relate to. Either they 
either they want to be in New York so much they don't have patience for people with having problems in New York because they're like, hey, you're in New York, you're lucky, you know, or Los Angeles. And then there's just, I think there's just a different way that people communicate in the Midwest too. I mean, they're actually a little more closed off sometimes. There's, everyone's trying to be so polite and kind of nice that there's more comedy of like nobody's saying what they want to say and you know here in new york is gonna yeah just <laughs> out it comes which is great that's why i love it here i mean that said there's actually a lot of projects i want to do that take place in new york but it it's it's taking the world here and then putting a spin on it, it it's kind of interesting to me but but i'll always default to the midwest because it's 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 my people i guess <laughs> but there's a thing too that if you set a comedy in Los Angeles, you tend to cast for people who look like they live in Los Angeles. Yeah, you tend to look, yeah, get yeah. that kind of group of actors who are kind of beautiful and that they can do the comedy okay, but it's really not a, really a plus for mine. It's just casting to make it look like they belong in that city. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. I mean, it's interesting. I, I really like that movie, 100 Days of Summer, or 500 Days, Days of Summer, Summer, because you didn't even, you couldn't, it was a very L.A. story, but it didn't look like it because they just focused on the L.A. downtown scene, which which is a whole new world for most people because most people in L.A. don't even dare go downtown because it's, it's just, you know, it's not what it was. And it, but I love it down there. And so it's cool that, like, all these, you know, the, the 20-somethings are now gravitating down there and it's re- revitalizing. But that was, like, I thought that was a cool use of Los Angeles, just showing a different Los Angeles than we normally see because we normally see, you know, that uh, Beverly Drive and, and Beverly Hills with all the palm trees. I also think, I also have just a prejudice. I think palm trees are the worst thing on film. I think they look terrible. They're not lush. They're just kind of stark, and, and the skyline is just blue, and there's nothing going. It's just boring, you know? That, the only thing worse than that is movies that take place on the beach in Hawaii. <laughs> anytime that your characters are running around in Hawaiian shirts, I just find it very, very depressing. <laughs> Even though forgetting Sarah Marshall was fantastic. There's just something about visually about, you know, I don't know, people drinking drinks with big straws and Hawaiian shirts. And well, I guess on that note, we know that Paul Feig <laughs> won't be doing the Magnum P.I. motion picture, but let's thank him for being here. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for uh, coming to see